Are you downsizing? Maybe need more room because of additions to the family, or possibly seeking that dream home you've always wanted. Well, Tim Eisner at Royal LePage Atlantic is the guy for you. With a proven track record and multiple awards, Tim goes above and beyond to find out your needs and exactly what you're looking for. So if you're seeking a new home or trying to sell your current one, contact Tim at 902-499-5717 or check him out on Facebook at Tim Eisner. Again, that's 902-499-5717. Trust me, when all is said and done, we'll be saying Tim Eisner strikes again. Hey, what's going on, everyone? Hope y'all had a fantastic weekend. Welcome to episode 88 of Outside the Shoot. I'm your host, Randy Frame. A couple things to get to before the OTC Player of the Week. First, have to throw out a huge congrats to the new home run queen in NCAA Division I softball as Jocelyn Allo of the Oklahoma Sooners surpassed Lauren Chamberlain to become the new career leader. Jocelyn launched her 96th career dinger on Friday night, and the coolest thing about this was she done it in her home state of Hawaii in front of family and friends. That's absolutely surreal, and, and that's really awesome. Again, congrats, Jocelyn. Uh, another thing I want to touch on was a, a perfect game that was thrown by UCLA pitcher Megan Farimo uh, on Saturday. Get this, she faced 15 batters in UCLA's 14-0 win, she struck out all 15 batters, but the craziest thing of this was she only threw 59 pitches and 52 of them were strikes. That is just insane. <laughs> Unreal. I still can't get over it. Uh, on to this week's OTC Player of the Week, and this week's honors goes to Allocate Smith from the Impact Gold National Smith team out of Texas. EK hit 667 with two doubles, four triples, six runs scored, and 11 RBIs while also striking out 23 batters in 10 innings of work last weekend at the 2022 Bomber Shootout. Awesome job, EK. Best of luck the rest of the season. On to this week's guest, and we sat down and chatted with former coach of the New Zealand Black Sox and current director of player health and performance for the San Diego Padres, Don Tricker. Don has had a big impact on the game of softball. He would play for the Black Sox from 1986 to 1991 and would go on to be named the head coach in 1998. Don was instrumental in changing the culture of the New Zealand program and it paid off as the Black Sox would win the world championship in 2000 and 2004 under his tutelage. Today, Don finds himself in the baseball world as he is working with the San Diego Padres, as previously mentioned. We're going to talk to him about not only getting a start in the game, but how his grandfather was one of the pioneers in bringing the game to New Zealand, some great stories from his time with the Black Sox, and of course, how he ended up in the biggest baseball league on the planet with San Diego. Don was such a pleasure to chat with. It was so awesome hearing all his great stories from the game. Trust me when I say, this one is a can't miss. So as usual, grab that drink, sit back, relax, because here we go. I've got the world in my palm. Lights, camera, action, it's on. I can't describe what I'm feeling. Ain't never felt this freedom. I've got the world in my palm. Lights, camera, action, it's on. Ain't never felt this freedom. Could you, could you say that anything goes Here we go. Don, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. 
Uh, it's my pleasure, Randy. How are things going out in Arizona today? Yeah, a little bit strange. We've um, it's really our first full day of our minor league camp, so we've had um, about three weeks of mini camp with um, a collection of our best prospects. But uh, yeah, there's obviously um, a large absence of major league uh, players here. Hopefully, that'll get resolved in the next few days. I was going to say, let's, let's get that out of the way. When's the strike ending? <laughs> yeah, well, let's, let's see what what uh, they're, they're, they're meeting. They're talking. So if they're meeting and talking, there's always hope. Yeah, true enough. That that's a big. Thing. How were uh, you know how how are things looking for you guys once this gets going? I will be ready. So and, and that's whenever um, whenever the players come back, we'll ensure that um, we'll get them ready for opening day. That's um, you know you work your way backwards from from opening day and ensure that um, the players are good to go. Yeah, and for sure. We can, in, we can do in sport. Let's get at the start line. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I mean, you guys you guys play in such a tough division too. I mean, that NL West is. Uh, She's a juggernaut with the San Francisco and LA there, right? Yeah, that, that's true. But having said that, you know, twenty nine other teams are all pretty good as well. Yeah, I, I haven't seen an easy game yet. Let's just say that in terms of very early last year, um, I did you know all one sixty two. Um, not once did I put my feet up and think, oh yeah, this game's under control. Mm. <laughs> yeah, yeah pretty, that game, that, like, it's funny. I mean, you watch a, like, I, I, I watch a ton of Major League Baseball and I mean, you could see a team up 8-1 going into the eighth inning and lose 10-8. So you're right. <laughs> Anything can happen. Yeah. Yeah, hopefully we're not going to have um, too many of those games. No, so. no. Well, I mean, you got you guys had trouble with the healthy pitching staff last year, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, we we obviously fell off a cliff. Things were going really well, and then um, we fell off a cliff about six weeks to go. Um, started with um, um, pitching, and um, you know, all, all your fast pitch listeners know it's a pretty tough game if uh, you don't you run out of pitching. <laughs> I mean falling on your right fielder to start throwing for you. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so so we, we were really challenged there. Um, but having said that, pretty much all year, we never got our game together. So mm-hmm. when we pitched well, we didn't hit. When we hit well, we didn't pitch, um, which meant that we were pretty much in every game all year. Like We were very rarely blowing out, um, but we never really blew teams away either, right. So which at every game was, was pretty tense. Right, right on. Well, Don, we have a little thing I like to kick the podcast off with. I call it quick pitches. I'm going to throw out a few random questions for you. They're all over the map. So uh, (laughs) you answer them as best you can. All right. First one. Uh, Who was the toughest pitcher you faced in your playing days? Uh, I'd go back to Michael White. I grew up with Michael. Um, He, we're a, I grew up in a, community or a province called uh, Western Bays and he was Wellington and we used to play against each other as kids and then as we got a little bit older we joined Western Bays and Wellington combined for um, for the Wellington competition so um, Michael was pretty tough um, in terms of your know, Canadians um, you can't go past in terms of my day um, uh, um, Darren Zach and Mike Pugnick um, I never got to, to see or play against Brad um, uh, Brad Underwood. Um, every time we went up to um, his part of the world for whatever reason, um, he never he wasn't uh, playing that particular day. Good yeah. news for us, um, but uh, but but bad news personally because I actually wanted to see the guy um, pitch. I've never actually seen him pitch. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. Now, Michael White made okay for himself, eh? <laughs> yeah, thing it's like, and, and I don't know if many people know that, but Michael didn't start pitching until he was about fifteen or sixteen. He was always a shortstop. He was a big kid, 
but shortstop was his position. Um, and then as you do, um, the, the, the pitcher ends up being the shortstop and the shortstop ends up being the pitcher. It's pretty much the way it worked in New Zealand uh, before we started coaching pitching. Um, and that was where, where guys tended to figure things out for themselves. I think in New Zealand, once we started coaching pitching, um, um, we didn't mean to do this, but I think we started to try and create clones. Um, and, uh, you know, there's only one Marty Grant, there's only one Chubb Tagarama, but if you're trying to get, get kids to pitch like them, it's pretty hard to do. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, next one, besides Petco, of course, uh, best stadium you've been to in the majors? Oh, uh, I like the um, I like the, the the river stadiums. Um, so Pittsburgh uh, or water stadiums, Pittsburgh, um, San Francisco, Cincinnati, mm-hmm. they're all they're all pretty cool. Um, but you know, in terms of facilities, you can't go past the the new setup in Texas. Uh, let's just say that the the, the visiting um, uh, clubhouse they absolutely swamps our setup that we got for the home team at Petco. Is that right? <laughs> No, no, it's it's something else. We never quite got to the uh, to the in the playoffs. We didn't like, a couple of years ago. We didn't quite get to the um, to the home team home team side, but I imagine that'd be pretty spectacular. Oh wow, that, that's awesome! Uh, if you could go back and replay one game over again, which one is it? Uh, what are we talking about? Softball. Softball. Um, uh, that is a. There's a, there's a lot out there. <laughs> taking me back, taking me back. Um, yeah, uh, I'd probably go back to um, 1988 in Saskatoon, and uh, we had to beat the, the Americans twice um, to win, and uh, we beat them the first time, and then they beat us in the in the, the second game. Probably go back to that game and probably um, swap around uh, the pitching that we decided to go with at the time. Okay, right on. Now that, geez, that, that's a tough format back then to, you know, have to win two games in the finals, wasn't it? Yeah, we, I mean, and we had, um, we had four games on that day. So we oh, started wow. off in the, like the, almost like the final of the winner's brackets. We played the US and we lost, I think, two to one um, on a, uh, on an inside the park home run through a right fielder's legs. Um, then we had to come back and um, play the Canadians um, and we beat the Canadians. Tough game. And then, uh, then, then the U.S. were sitting there waiting for us, so we had to um, um, to get past them twice, and we couldn't quite do it. And it was one of those rare days in, in um, Saskatoon where it was probably about you know ninety five, hundred degrees. So it was it was a it was a tough day all around. Let's just say at the end of the day, whilst we're bitterly disappointed that um, we didn't win, um, yeah, we'd we'd given everything that we had. And it was one of those things that that American team back in 1988 was absolutely stacked. Mm. So you know, on reflection, we you know we were bitterly disappointed at the time. But when I thought about it years later, it was like we're pretty um, fortunate to actually get a chance to play against them. Yeah, they were that good. Yeah, for sure. Uh, if you had to live off one meal for a week, what is it? I'd probably go back to you know my staple um, um, birthday meal. Mine was always macaroni cheese. So I still still roll back to that one. (laughs) That's always a safe one, right? (laughs) Yeah, that was again, you know, I'm one of seven, so got three brothers, three sisters. So, you know, each birthday you get to pick your meal. Um, They all pick pretty cool meals, but I just stuck to my macaroni. (laughs) Uh, Who's the best player, in your opinion, of course, uh, to ever play the game of softball? Yeah, that's, yeah. That's a tough one, eh? Yeah, it is. It is a tough one, and I'm I'm going to be 
obviously biased because I've um, seen a lot of New Zealanders play a hell of a lot more than I have seen Canadians. Um, but I'd go with Mark Sorensen. Mm. Um, not only um, – and, and it's more than – when I think about player, it's not what you do on the field, it's what you do off the field um, and, um, and mental toughness. And I can't think, or certainly in my time, anyone who had the skill set um, of uh, that I've either coached or played with the skill set or mindset that Mark um, brought to the game. Mm. Uh, so uh, that, that's, that's why I'd settle on Mark. Where, where does nickname come from? Which one? Brutus. Brutus was um, way back in the day. He, he was... Uh, he played for Cardinals pretty much all his life, um, and uh, one of their, their coaches was a legendary um, New Zealand player called Basil McLean, and um, he started calling him, um, I think it was like Brutus Maximin after the, um, you know, the, the old uh, gladiator, back in the gladiator day. <laughs> yeah. That's where Brutus um, came from. Okay. Well, good good little fun fact to know now. <laughs> and when we come up here and people started calling him Spudsy, we go, where did that come from? Because... <laughs> Partying and Mark Sorensen don't don't go in the same sentence. Oh, really? So, and maybe for a year or two, um, when he came over here, um, that's what went on. But uh, yeah, back in New Zealand, he was pretty focused, <laughs> and you know, and, and his mantra was um, never never to get beaten in practice. So that oh. tells you a lot about him. So he takes everything pretty seriously. Absolutely. That's hey, that, that's a good that's a good trait to have for sure. I mean, anybody that uh, you know goes hard at practice, you know, you know they're going to give it all in the game too. Yeah, well, it's pretty easy for me. When I was coaching him, uh, it was pretty easy where you have, and very rare, that your best player is also has the, the best work ethic. Mm. So um, so that, that's a pretty easy standard to set, um, and it's pretty easy to hold him accountable. Um, so, And that's lots of things like that in terms of where he helped uh, the Black Sox over the years in many ways um, had nothing to do with um, on-field performance. Absolutely. Uh, a couple more here. Uh, best place, Best place you've ever vacationed? I'd uh, say probably a New Zealand again, um, a beach uh, called Mount Monganui. Uh, it's about three hours north of north east of Auckland. Mm-hmm. Uh, quite a long way from where I live. I live in Wellington, um, but um, great beach, great weather, and it has um, um, a, a hill that's called a mountain that you can walk up and down. Great trails and things like that. So there's always plenty to do. Nice. Uh, last one. How good is Fernando Tatis Jr.? <laughs> um, yeah, he's, and that's that's the thing that, that I pinch myself every day in, in many ways is that I come to work and I get to work with guys like um, Fernando Tatis, Manny Machado, you know, and, and I had never, no aspirations that I'd, I'd work in baseball, mm. work in the US, let alone baseball and let alone in the major leagues. But um, Tatis is a, um, let's start off in terms of he's a good young man. And that comes from um, he's got great parents, so great role models at home. He's um, uh, what he can do on the baseball field is um, phenomenal. Um, and um, but we all also need to remember, remind ourselves that he's just a young man, right. and and um, young men um, on occasions uh, make poor decisions, and um, and he's learning. And that's one of the thing, what most important things for us is that can we help Fernando, um, you know, grow into uh, the human being that we know he's capable of. That's going to add um, so much value to so many people's lives. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's already doing it on the baseball field, but I think he's got um, potential to do a lot more than that. Right on. 
Right on. Uh, we usually start off the podcast by, uh, you know, asking our guests to tell us about getting their start in the game. But before you do, I understand a family member of yours played a big part, not only helping get your start in the game, but the whole country, essentially. Am I right? Yeah, that's right. And it was, um, and um, a bunch of Canadians. So uh, my grandfather worked at Ford Motor Company in uh, Seaview, um, which is um, a place in Wellington. And uh, the Ford Motor Company was pretty much um, set up with a bunch of New Zealanders and a bunch of Canadians who were coming out, um, showing the New Zealanders the ropes in terms of how you build Fords. Uh, and um, it was the Canadians that started playing softball. So, and I don't know exactly what form it was. I suspect it was um, not quite the fast pitch that we were thinking about today. Right. But that's where, that's where softball started in New Zealand. And my granddad played in the, the very first game of softball in New Zealand at the Seaview Ford plant. Um, my granddad went on to be New Zealand's um, chief umpire, which is why, if anyone knows me in, in Canada, why I never argue with umpires. <laughs> um, two, two reasons. One, you never win. That's right. And... And two, um, my should say that my granddad um, would uh, wouldn't wouldn't look down on me very fondly. So I have strategies for umpires um, where I wasn't very successful, but I had a strategy. Uh, so that's where it started. So massive um, family um, connection to the sport. He started the the local club that um, that I grew up in in Porirua, and um, and that's where it all started for me. Right on. So I started at four, following my older brothers. Right so on. that's when. I, the first game, first team that I was a part of. Okay. Well, tell us about your development in the game growing up. Yeah, so I started um, at four. Um, played um, essentially with the same group of kids through until we were 15. And um, and we were coached by a, um, a great man, a guy called um, Mr. Tuffery. Uh, and uh, those were the days um, where there were no – you need seatbelts. didn't even know what a seatbelt was in a car. <laughs> and, um, and all 12 of the kids in the, in the team could fit in this car and he can drive you around to wherever we're playing. And the way, um, way softball works in New Zealand is that it's community-based. So you play for your local community, and that, that's, that's, that's a club. My, my community was Porirua. So that, that, that team, that club had about probably 20 – kids teams and probably 15 or 16 um, afternoon grade or senior um, adult players mm -hmm. teams. And um, and we would just travel all around um, the Wellington um, area and we'd play against other teams. So that's where it started. Um, and um, then from there, um, I started playing uh, for the Porira's top team. Um, started at 15 and in that top team we had uh, Lauren Algor was our pitcher. So we had pretty good pitching. Uh, and then a few years, um, probably when I was, I spent a couple of years in the United States. I played in Cedar Rapids, Iowa for a, a couple of years when I was um, pretty young. Huh. Uh, and that was a great eye-opener for me in terms of understanding, um, again, a different way of playing the game. New Zealand played the game very defensively. So we had good pitching, um, good defense, but we couldn't really hit. And it was because we never really understood um, how to hit. We, um, we didn't want to strike out. So by not striking out meant that we were very passive hitters. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until guys, um, players started coming to the States and seeing that actually you can still take a good swing um, when when you, it's two strikes against you. And that was the changing for, for New Zealand in terms of those guys coming to New Zealand, along with um, a collection of Americans and Canadians in the early days um, who'd come to New Zealand and um, and actually show us how to hit guys like, um, uh, was it Brian, not this um I get his first name right. I know it was Green out of um, – he was playing for Victoria Bates. He was one of the first guys that came across. Okay. Uh, 
and then there were um, uh, plenty of players that followed him, and and we jumped on the bandwagon. I know in my local club, uh, we had a couple of um, um, Daryl Clarkson came out and played there in his early days. Mike Pecknick played for Porirua. I'd moved on from Porirua at that stage. Mm-hmm. I started playing for a team called Paniki Kilburnie, PK in Wellington, um, and um, but all those guys came out and played for Porirua. Right on. Actually, something you touched on there about the the no seatbelts, and it kind of rung up something for me about listening to your your podcast with the Chopper and Damien there on Beyond the Dugout. Right. Uh, you told a story about the the life lesson that uh, yeah, your yeah. coach back then. Can you yeah. tell that story again? Because yeah, oh, that made me laugh. Yeah, it's it's, a, it's probably a reflection of who I am. Is that I'm I'm a massive um, I'm a reflector. I try and figure things out. I always have. Uh, and um, Mr. Tuffery, a great, great man, um, he taught us lots of life lessons, but one he taught us was um, um, about marriage. And uh, after every game, he used to buy us an ice cream. Um, and then when we got to about nine or ten, he started replacing the ice creams with ice blocks or popsicles. Uh, and so an ice cream in those days might have cost you well, 30 cents or 40 cents, and an a ice block would cost about three or four cents. So as young kids, we quite like the ice creams. And we'd say to him, what's going on, Mr. Tuff? And he said, boys, you'll find this out one day, but marriage is expensive. <laughs> <laughs> and as it turns out, we got married and uh, money got tight and he, had, he couldn't spend as much money on us. Oh, what a wise man. Oh. Yeah, he was. <laughs> That's so great. Oh, I laughed at that story when I heard it. Oh, that was so good. Um, was there a point you can remember that you were like, uh, you know, this game could play a big role in my life? It wasn't until I hurt myself. Um, so I, I played lots of other sports. I played um, soccer as a kid. And then uh, as a New Zealander, you're, you know, you're supposed to play rugby. So uh, it's a bit like, you know, do you know any Canadians who haven't played ice hockey? Um, so... <laughs> So I had uh, so I played a game played rugby from my high school my last year of high school and I demolished a knee uh, and um, to the extent where I had to um, surgery on it and the surgeon would say oh, you're never going to play sport again in your life um, and I said oh well, sports a massive part of who I am and what I want to do so I'll see um, but at that point that's where I started um, focusing on softball. Uh, and um, I was always um, pretty good going through the grades and um, that but. Well, I'm not sure that I was pretty good. I was I was part of really good teams. So when you have, um, for our for example, our Wellington age grade teams, this is like under 15, under 16, and then you go on under 18, under 19s, etc. Our starting pitching was um, we had two pitchers, Michael White and Brent Stevenson. So we were pretty good. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so as a result, we tended to dominate um, national championships. Uh, so. And so I was always part of good teams. And when you're part of good teams, you start to, to your confidence soars, you start to figure out a few things. And um, and that's pretty much the way it works for me. Right on. Now, I want to ask, what was it like seeing the, the landscape of softball in New Zealand, you know, develop from when you were younger to like the powerhouse that they are to this day now? Yeah, I'd say that in terms of, and if you talk to anyone in New Zealand, it's nothing like. Um, what we were back in um, when I was growing up and when I was playing hmm. uh, and that um, we had great coverage. Well, New Zealand gets good, really good coverage now in terms of um, through the media and through um, Sky Television. So they right. get a lot of games. Um, but what we, what we don't have now is, um, is the number of kids playing the game. Uh, 
So that's a really big issue for the sport. So you, know, you still have a lot of guys playing and and very um, very good players and playing um, competitively um, in their late thirties, early forties. Um, but if we if our sport is um, going really well and is healthy, there's no way those guys can compete with the younger kids. Mm. The reason that they're still playing is we don't have the younger kids playing. So and and the the, the issue with um, the sport was that there were other offshoots of sport, um, touch rugby, uh, that um, that pretty much used the same demographic that played softball. And as a sport, um, we were probably a little bit too arrogant, thinking that this is a fad and these, they'll all come back to softball and, and that um, that didn't happen. So our numbers were, um, were you know, took a huge hit, probably um, early 90s, mid 90s, and I don't think the sports ever recovered. So, and as a result, um, you know, we've got enough pitching in New Zealand at the moment, but we don't have the pitching that they had back in the 70s and 80s where you'd have in the Wellington competition, you'd have eight teams and you would have probably the, you know, and and I'd say this to Mark in terms of a guy who'd be ranked fifth or sixth in the Wellington competition. And there's competitions all through the country would probably um, be good enough um, to push um, for a Black Sox spot. Um, So we just don't have that depth that we, we once had. Right. Hopefully the, you know, with the worlds being back there again this year, hopefully that, you know, might, you know, kids will see that and be like, oh, I want to play softball. Like, you know, something like that can, can bring a resurgence to the game, I find. Yeah, you do. But you need, you need, again, so you've got Mark doing a great job with the Black Sox. You need, um, you need the sport, the, um, you know, the national body. Um, figuring out um, you know, where do we want to be in five years' time, right? And then, uh, and then taking, um, you know, being brutally honest with themselves in terms of where we are right now, and um, what do we need to do differently? Because if we keep on doing the same stuff, um, then it's going to be a challenge. And then you, now you've got um, the emergence of New Zealand baseball. So when I was a kid, baseball wasn't in New Zealand. Um, so you've got baseball. So you've got lots of, um, you've got cell phones. You've got lots of different <laughs> things that kids that we're competing with and that's the reality so we need to understand in terms of what's our value proposition and how can we package it up that's going to um, um, generate interest in kids and if we do it right then the kids are going to want to come back uh, and they're going to want to bring a friend Mm. now that's the real to me in terms of the real outcome we're looking for and if we can do that um, then we got a sport that's going to last for forever yeah but if we don't and if we rely on what we've always done we're probably going to be in trouble yeah absolutely if I think about in terms of my time in the States when I was there and then when I was coaching the Black Sox, um, I could see um, massive um, warning flags around the, you know, the, as super teams were starting to get built. Is that when I first went to Cedar Rapids, every community had a fast pitch team. Uh, and then, but what happened is that the best player on every little community team got sucked into one of the big teams, a pen corp or whatever. Mm-hmm. So then the, the community teams lost incentive. So what's the point? Um, so then they stop playing. Um, so, and that's, uh, I don't think the, the U S again have figured that out. No, no. I mean, we talked that we had Nick McCurry on here and we talked at length about, about that, you know, the big budget teams and pretty much taking over, taking over the U S and yeah, it's such a downer really. Cause I mean, like you said, back, back in the day, every community, like every town had, had a top notch fast pitch team and the competition yep. was amazing. Yeah, actually, speaking of Nick, I almost played for Nick. Oh, did you? So I just I just started playing for the Black Sox, and um, it was the year that um, Lauren Alger and Darren Zach were pitching, and uh, I had um, an opportunity to play with Nick, 
And uh, I was on my way to the American Embassy. I talked to work, and work had told me that, well, if you leave, we're not keeping your job open. So I went to the embassy to get my um, visa, and and I turned around when I got to the embassy and went back to work. Oh, um, and then called Nick and said, no, I can't do it. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's, but, but then, the, way, the way things work out, I started playing for New Zealand after that, and I started going up there every year. And uh, we played in Ashland, so I spent a fair bit of time with Nick uh, when we when we were there um, playing in Ashland. What, you, so you got you got to know Nick personally, did you? A little bit, yeah. Not not as much as right. I would have um, back in those days, and, and I'm sure he wanted to bring me up because he'd heard I. My only the only reason I made the New Zealand team was because I had the I had the was the only person to get Chub Tangaroa home at night. So he probably <laughs> thought I could do the same with Darren Zach. So, but I'm not sure that would have worked either. Oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> again, every time I every time I made the New Zealand team, I thought, well, "Why am I rooming with Chubb?" <laughs> uh, was like, and then it finally dawned on me, "Oh, yeah. this is the only one this team." Oh, that's great! That's fantastic. Uh, I want to ask about your your transition from playing to coaching. How did that all come about? Well, yeah, when you when you're part of those, um, you know, the softball family, and um, you're and you're coaching your team and your community, then right from the get go, there's an expectation that you're going to um, help, um, and um, uh, helping is the easiest way to help as coach. So I was coaching kids um, while I was still a kid, so I was always coaching teams. And um, and even then, when I played the game, I, I looked at the game a little bit differently than a lot of the guys I played with. So even though I was playing, I was always sort of deemed to be a bit of the older guy in terms of um, the guy that thinks about things, mm-hmm. uh, and um, and that's pretty much the way it works. So the transition was reasonably seamless. I didn't didn't have an expectation of coaching, um, and um, the only reason I started coaching uh, PK was because Fred White, um, another great ball player, um, you know, uh, started uh, playing my ego and said, hey, when you, we need a coach. Why don't you come and coach us? You'd be really good at coaching. And up until then, hadn't even thought about it. Uh, and that's where it started. And I thought, oh, okay, I'll give it a go. Um, and, um, yeah, I enjoyed coaching. Um, and enjoy – I guess what I enjoy about coaching is creating an environment that, that our people people can be extraordinary uh, and um, and how that environment changes from you know team to team, player to player, but it still comes back to if we can remove noise or remove clutter, figure out what we need to be good at and be really good at it, um, we've got a pretty good chance of success. And that's um, pretty much that same model that I used way back when I coached PK. Um, the early days of the Black Sox is what I've taken with me all the way through. I've refined it a, an awful lot since then um, with my stints in rugby um, and now here at the Padres. Um, but it all started um, back in the, the softball days. Right on. So that initial you know, announcement that you'd be coaching the Black Sox, like that must have been, you know, a pretty big honor for you back then. Yeah, it was. It was. Yeah, the the, the way it came about was pretty weird. And that uh, the black they Mike Walsh retired. They appointed Warren Stoddard for a couple of years. They never actually played any games um, in those two years. And then they decided to go back to the market. Uh, and I had a young family at that stage, and and it was one of those. It's either now or never. So I decided to throw my name in the ring and was fortunate enough to get the job uh, and uh, myself and Eddie Colassi. And then we um, we went about 
doing things. And, and it's the thing, we, we were pretty um, fortunate. We inherited a, a group of players that, um, that had been with Mike Walsh. Um, and the most important um, um, characteristic that those players had was that they believed um, that uh, they could be world champions. Hmm. And so it was easy for Eddie and I uh, to spend some time with that group and ensuring that we um, uh, we focused a little less on softball and more on the team. And that was one of the things that when I used to play, I always um, wondered, why do we focus on the game before the team? Uh, so, and um, and that was when we were with Black Sox. We were always short of time, so Mike would be focusing on how we're going to play the game, how we're going to play the game. And um, you're only as good as the team, so if the team starts to unravel, then your on-field performance is certainly going to suffer. So the first thing I did when we got the Black Sox job is that we had a camp, and the sole focus of that camp was to actually understand each other and start to build a team. We didn't do anything softball-related. And I still remember, you know, looking across the table at guys like Dean Rice, guys that I'd played with, and they just start laughing or we laugh at each other. And so this is going to take a little bit of getting used to because, um, you know, a few years earlier I was playing with those guys. Mm. Man, that I I heard you talking about uh, the – well, actually, we, we talked to Murray Grant on here too about it, and he mentioned about, uh, you know, the, the army drills that you guys did. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Talk to us about that because that's a, I love that story. Okay, so we um, you know, we, we didn't have two cents to rub together, so we put that into context. Um, we this was before we uh, went to the World Series in South Africa, hmm. and uh, we wanted to build a um, a really tough team, a team that was mentally strong, um, and we needed to create experiences that we all shared. Um, that were quite tough um, but funny um, because we needed to have that humour because where we stayed in South Africa, you had to laugh or actually <laughs> cry. But so we, because we didn't have any money, um, then we went off and talked to people about, um, in those days I was working in computing, so I was in IT, mm. and we talked to people about what do you do about team building exercises and you know, the price tags were like 30000 40000 50000 Oh, great, we don't have anything like that. <sighs> So I worked. Well, the company I worked for had a ski lodge um, that the staff would use. Uh, it was um, just before the ski season had started. So we, um, so my company gave us the ski lodge for free. So that was the first thing. So we know we knew we had a place to stay, had great cooking facilities, could get everyone there, and it was in the middle of the North Island. So the Aucklanders drove down. Um, the guys from the South Island flew into Wellington, and then we all drove up. So it didn't cost us much. And then our manager um, worked for the army. Well, not worked for, he's in the army. And um, our biggest base is in the uh, middle of the North Island, about 30 minutes from where the ski lodge was. So what we did is that um, we leveraged off the army to create opportunities for us to actually um, give these uh, the team and management some experiences that you know, city kids wouldn't normally get. Um, the brief was that, um, at the time, the, there was a massive um, perception of danger and real risk that you get hurt, but in reality, no risk because, you know, the last thing I want to do is, oh, we just lost Marty Grant, but he's not going to the World Series because he fell over. Fell yeah. down the <laughs> so, so we had all sorts of things. We had abseiling. We had, I'll tell you one story about um, caving. So they take us into a cave. So you're in this cave and you walk in um, you got your helmets on to protect your head and, and the army guys are there to make sure we don't get us in too much trouble. And I don't know if you've ever been in a cave, but the further further you get into a cave, the darker it gets. 
boat. It's waist deep in water. We don't know what's going on. Um, guys are hitting their heads on the, the roof. Um, and then Kerry Johansson, um, one of the veteran players, is calling it, oh, man, I wish we had a match. And then one of the young guys at the back, a guy called Nathan Nukunuk, who says, well, I've got a match. Oh, one, and then Kerry, of course, rips them apart. Why don't you tell us you've got a match? Because I've also got candles. <laughs> so, so then eventually, so they, um, so they light, them, light the candles and they found their way out to the other end. But the real learning there that we, we explored is that, okay, so why was it that Nathan felt that he didn't have a voice um, with that group of older players? And the other part is that, okay, and the older players, why didn't you pause to understand what assets you had? Before you charged, um, you know, um, head first into into this caving exercise, trying to be big heroes. So that was um, some of the exercises that we had. So a lot of laughter, um, some lessons learned. You know, found out that I can beat Dean Rice in one thing in my life, and that's abe sailing, because <laughs> he doesn't go down a cliff very fast. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious! It's funny though. I mean, I've said it on here many times. Team chemistry is massive, isn't it? Yeah, and it's and uh, again, I'll come back to in terms of if you don't have a team, then essentially you have a group of independent contractors uh, who aren't invested. Mm. And if they're not invested, that um, when the stuff gets tough, stuff gets real, uh, they'll take the soft option. If they're invested, um, they'll figure out a way to, to push through you know, the stuff that makes them uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Yep, absolutely. Now, you talked about having limited funds back then. <laughs> Tell us about the Rawlings deal that you, uh, <laughs> that you come up oh, with. Okay. <laughs> okay. So this is the other part is that, so I'm coach of the Black Sox. I've got a full-time job in IT. Uh, so the, the Black Sox is a, and back in those days, you're a, you're a volunteer. Hmm. Uh, so I'd be, my work week would typically be about 60 hours a week. And then I was probably doing 25, 30 hours a week on Black Sox stuff. So there were long weeks. Um, um, my wife is, is you know, an incredible woman. Um, but, um, what we did was that, um, we, when we toured, um, the North, North America, um, then we had to negotiate all those tours. Um, and we had to negotiate appearance money and cause we didn't have any money. So we had to offset funds. So, you know, we were talking to people like, um, you know, Jennifer Garanza, um, Neil Fennell, those types of people to help us in terms of, okay, what could that um, look like? And then we had um, our uniforms that we had when I first um, was in the team in 1998. I wore those uniforms, same uniform. So, and I hadn't played since uh, 1992. So, you know, you can tell the stories about, you know, and and really cool stories about Mike Nichols um, bleeding this uniform that you're now wearing as you hand over the jersey. But when the jersey doesn't fit, because, you know, when you wash jerseys year after year after year, they get smaller and smaller. Right. And the guys get bigger and bigger. (laughs) Uh, So what we thought we'd do is that we'd start riding around. So we wrote to Rawlings um, and um, shared with Rawlings who we are and what we're all about and is there any chance of getting four sets of uniforms. The reason we went before was we thought they might say one. We're only after one set of uniforms. But anyway, they, we wanted a black one, a white one, a grey one, um, and a red one. So they wrote back to us and, um, you know, and really encouraged us for the letter and they sent four complete sets of uniforms and pants back, um, one of which was blue. So 
And then we had to check to say, oh, we're really after grey, but we're really grateful for the blue one. And then a grey one arrived. So we ended up getting five sets of uniforms. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and we'd never had anything new like that before. So mm-hmm. all the gear that we wore at that World Series in South Africa was pretty much um, pristine, straight off um, Rawlings. And, um, you, know, you know, you hear the, the, the words a lot, you know, look like a softballer, you know, you'll, you know you'll, if you feel good, you'll go out there and play well. And we certainly felt pretty good about it in terms of how the gear that we put together for us, for, for, for the team. Mm. Did you guys wear the blue ones at all? No. No. no I- never, never, never. We used the blue one as like a, a batting practice type. Um, it was a vest. Um, it was a, a batting practice uh, type shirt. But I don't think it's ever made. made um, it's probably a good collector's item. I'm sure if one or two of the guys have grabbed it, kept a hold of them. But um, you'd very rarely see a New Zealand team wearing blue. No, I, I was going to say. I mean, Jesus, that'd be a, that'd be a faux pas. <laughs> I, I want to ask about the you know the culture that you created then, because I heard you saying about you know one example was the swagger that you guys had. You know, walking in. Okay. As a group, and you, you know, you gave a good story with Damien Chopper about uh, Japan was practicing all day. You guys went off and did your thing for five to ten minutes and walked back by them, playing playing head games essentially. Yeah, what we wanted to do was, you know, we we knew that we were we'd done everything that we could um, to get to the start line of that world world championship um, with the best chance of success doesn't mean you're going to win because there are really good teams at world championships. Mm. So what we did was that we wanted to do everything slightly different that was new to softball. So it's almost like we wanted to be an outcast of fast pitch softball. So the traditional warm-ups, we wanted to do things differently. Um, but I'll come to the Japan story and then I'll talk about our warm-ups. So Japan was, we knew that Japan were going to be pretty tough. Um, we knew the psyche of Japan is, is um, work, 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 very mechanical. So um, we get to, it was the night before the World Series was about to start. Um, Japan had been training for hours, as they do. And then we had to go across to the other side of the field. It was a really big field. Um, and it's just a big open grass field, so you can just work out on some diamonds and things. So we walked past them very slowly, um, very bunched up, and um, and they tracked us all the way across to the other side of the field. And then when we got there, um, you know, the guys put their shoes on, started throwing the ball around, and, and, and at that, that stage it was one of those adapt and adjust because we were there to practice for an hour or so. Mm. But it was like, oh, wow, I love this. This is what the Japanese are doing. So then I told the guys to take their shoes off and uh, we're done for the day. So we walked back past the Japanese um, and knowing, to me, knowing what they would do, and it was um, that they worked harder because what the message we tried to send to them was that, hey, we're, we're done, we're ready. Um, and um, hopefully the message that we were sending to them was that there's a bit of doubt in them. They were asking themselves, are they ready? So they worked a bit harder. So we kept the Japanese out there for probably about six hours on that particular day. <laughs> That's crazy. <laughs> and then our pregame warm-up was very noisy, very loud, uh, and um, was not a lot that you would typically see in, in softball back in those days. And we used to do it, and every time we did it, um, pretty much every team that, that we played against would um, stop and um, stop what they were doing and, and look at us. And all we were trying to do, the mindset was that hey, if they're thinking about us, they're not thinking about what they need to do. Wow. Wow. I never even thought of that. That's awesome. <laughs> My mind games. 
hey. Yeah, and that's and that's the thing. And then often in terms of um, when you win the, the biggest biggest prizes in in sport, it comes down to primarily talent isn't enough. It comes down to those that um, um, have that that mindset or that that you know that mental fortitude to actually you know um, fight their way through the pressure. Mm, absolutely. Now before we get on to 2004, I, I want to ask, what's the main thing you look for in a player like when you're coaching? Like, what's the biggest thing you look for? They've got to be able to play the game. So skill set's critical. Mm-hmm. Uh, so um, you can't take a, um, a team away to a world championships that are all made of the right stuff, but we can't catch the ball. So um, we've got to be able to play the game, and then it's about character. And it's about fit. And um, in New Zealand, there's a um, you know, there's a, a famous quote that comes out of the All Blacks, and that is that they have a, like a no dickheads policy. Um, <laughs> now, having worked with the All Blacks, I know that's not necessarily true. Yeah. Uh, but, um, but I think what they're saying is that we can afford in any team, you can afford maybe one and a half um, people or players who aren't quite made of the right stuff. Mm-hmm. If you have two of them, you're in trouble because they'll find each other and they'll try and drag others down with them. So so that's really important. So when I'm thinking about um, uh, what type of behaviours we're looking for, first and foremost is, is you look, we're looking for players who are you know, highly motivated or driven um, to be a world champion. So they don't want to um, um, get a blazer. They don't want a plane ride. They actually want to be a world champion. And I've got a story to tell you about that too. Second one is, so those are the self-starters. They take ownership of their um, of their performance. Second one we're looking for is respectful. They've got to respect themselves. They've got to respect their teammates, the game of softball, New Zealand, the community they're from, what they're representing because it's bigger than us. Then it's open. You know, we want people who are inquisitive, um, only partly right. Um, you know, we're not know-it-alls. It's like, oh, that's interesting. We'll look a bit deeper in that. And the last one is um, super competitive. And that is that um, we need to, um, you know, in anything we play, we want to win, whether it's cards, basketball, um, you know, anything at all, it's like we want to win. Mm-hmm. So those are the types of the characteristics. And if I come back to the um, to the driven one, um, it, was the, it was not long before the World Series in, in South Africa, we were always worried that one or two of the players were more interested in making the team um, or that they were motivated to making the team, but not necessarily being a world champion. So, as a coach, you you, you create incidents that um, bring these types of issues to the surface. And so, I knew that 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 was the case. So we had a um, a goal setting session. So we're talking about our goals. What do we really want out of South Africa? Um, and um, and I pretty much knew what everyone was going to write. And it was all about I want to make the team World Series team. So I called on one guy um, and um, said, what, what's your goal? And he says, I want to make the World Series team. So what I did was um, I walked over to him, shook his hand, lifted his um, bag up, gave it to him, put my arm around him, walked him to the door and said, we're not interested in guys who want blazers. We're interested in guys who want to win a world championship and shoot and shoot him out the door. Now, there was a scurry of activity behind me where guys were crossing out their goals. And <laughs> And then for that day, the players thought this particular player was cut. And then he popped back in in the evening and rejoined the group. Wow. And that was that, that. So that's an incident that we created that we knew we needed to create an incident that was powerful enough to shift the mindset of the, of the team. 
Um, So that was that was an example of of what we did. Now the player was in on it, yeah, and he and he did a great job. Wow! Um, But did did that shift um, the mindset of the team? That one incident. That's awesome. That is that's such great stuff. Such great stuff. Um, Was it true that uh, Mark wasn't going to be playing in two thousand four until you threw a little bug in his ear eighteen months prior? Yeah, I mean, all of you, you know. Lots of um, you know, your, your listeners, particularly the guys that we've played against over the years um, who have been world champions, know it's really hard. Mm. And, and to go back and do it again, it's like, oh, do I really want to do that again? So we've had that um, with a few guys. The first one was the – I'll talk about Dion Nukunuku initially. So he was part of the team that won in 1996, and he was like, oh, I don't know that I really want to do this. And he was getting rounder and rounder, and we know that he, we needed him to be in shape and actually wanted to be there. So the way I got to Dion was over breakfast one morning, I just happened to throw something out to say that, do you know, no one's ever won back-to-back world championships. It's the very first two in um, 66 and 68 when the US team won. And then I just walked away. And I knew that was going to be enough for Dion to go, oh, wow, no one's ever done this before. And then with Mark, it was like, um, you know, Mark was still playing in the US. He'd stopped playing in New Zealand, but he was playing in the US. And um, it was about 18 months out. I just said to Mark, mate, you know, you know, you've done everything in softball. I said, you know, the one thing you haven't done? And he looked at me and said, what's that? I said, you've never won in New Zealand. <laughs> and then I walked away. Oh. Uh, and, uh, and then 18 months later, it was like I left him alone. Um, and I knew he was chewing on it for 18 months. Mm-hmm. And then when he came back, um, I said, are you in? And he said, yep. <laughs> and that's all it took. It's funny. You, you talked about Dion and Mark and then, your intro into coaching saying that you it sounds like the kiwis are very influ like influenced easily <laughs> when it comes to when it comes to competition uh well if if they if if you can create you come back to competitive okay yeah. that competitive right if you can create a challenge new zealanders will want a piece of it absolutely yeah um, if it's going to be, I mean, we're, if you think about our nation, um, you know, a little bit quick history story is that we're a nation of explorers. So our forefathers, you know, we're at the bottom of the earth. No one gives a shit about us. Mm. So we, <laughs> we had to figure out how to make things. Um, and um, we had, you know, um, we had um, Sir Edmund Hillary, first guy with Tenzing Norgay on Mount Everest. Um, so we've, we've had explorers all the way along. So challenges are pretty much in our DNA. Uh, and, um, and that's all we do is that you just plant a seed and let it um, water it every once in a while. And um, the players will figure it out for themselves. Now, if they chose not to accept that challenge, mm-hmm. we knew that they weren't, they weren't quite the guys um, that we were looking for at that stage of their career. But I knew that they were, which is why you just plant the seed. Man. I wish, I wish our guys around here would be like that. <laughs> Man, that, that's such a good, uh, uh, I don't know what the word is. Just, I really don't know what the word is. I mean, that's so awesome that, you know, you could throw that out there and, and then, you know, you guys go and accomplish what you've done. Yeah. And it's, again, it's, it's good people. Uh, and I can use that word extraordinary things. It's good people mm. with skill um, doing you know, extraordinary things. And, and in fast pitch, um, you, know, you talk about I and we. And if I think about fast pitch, think about softball, think about baseball, it's that um, execution is, is all about me. 
I have to catch the ball, I have to throw the ball, I have to hit the ball, I have to pitch the ball. But winning is about we. Mm. I can't win. We have to win. So therefore, you got to build a team. Very good. Very good. Uh, I got to ask about, of course, 2004, you guys hosted the Worlds. Uh, how awesome was that atmosphere? Yeah, it was. Well, we, New Zealand had, had the World Series in 1996. Uh, and, no, oh, sorry, 1976. Right. And so in 2004, that came back to New Zealand. So, you know, we were thinking it was a once in a lifetime opportunity. We were thinking that the next time we come back to New Zealand will be another. 25 odd years so we never get a chance to do it again so we really embraced that and uh, we really embraced pressure we knew that um, we'd proven to be pretty good at winning in all sorts of different places around the world um, in competition to the All Blacks because they'd be playing so no one would be paying us any attention at all so we could just go off and we were free to play Um, and we knew that when we played in New Zealand we'd be largely one of the only shows in town so then a lot of the tension would be thrown towards the, the Black Sox. So so that was the challenge, is that could we actually perform um, when we're in the spotlight? Um, and um, and that's what we the challenge that we threw down there. So we, we talked to lots of different teams, lots of play, um, from different sports who have struggled winning in New Zealand. Um, so we understood what, what, what worked for them, what didn't work for them. We leveraged all, off all of that. And then we, um, um, and then you know, our theme was, um, and it was pretty hard not to feel it, in terms of you know we were just well loved. So the support base in New Zealand um, at that World Series wanted this team to do really well, and we just leveraged off that in terms of you could just feel it. Mm. Uh, and uh, we did things that were a little bit different back in those days. Is that we negotiated with the organising committee of where our families were going to be. Um, so we ended up having, we took over a, one of the stands in the outfield. So I wanted our players to know where their, their significant others, their kids were going to be at any moment in time. Right. Um, so little things like that helped um, draw um, the families um, into into that experience. Um, so it was those sorts of things um, that we were doing. Uh, and we had a pretty good team. Um, and we were, you know, we had some uh, a big setback in losing Marty Grant a day or so out from the World Series. Right. But the team was good enough to overcome that. Yeah, well, I mean, you can watch the, you can go on YouTube and you know see the highlights of it all. And I mean, the the highlights of that final against Canada, that crowd was absolutely raucous. Like they, that must have been loud there in person. Yeah, it was. It's and. You know, I've played, I've played, I've coached all around the world. Um, and, um, you know, that crowd was, was, yeah, was great, was behind New Zealand. Um, there was lots of like little mini um, uh, reunions going on. So players from years ago, they all came out of the woodwork. They, you know, heroes to a lot of the players that were playing today, they all showed up. Mm. So that all helped as well. Uh, and um, but, but it was the, the key to the success was pretty simple, and that was um, you know, we knew we had to pitch well, we knew we had to defend well, and um, we had to hit. Uh, and and uh, we were going to be incredibly tight. It wasn't going to be one guy that was going to do it for us. Mm-hmm. We had to actually figure out a way to uh, everyone to contribute. Right on. So after 2004, you stepped away from the Black Sox. You jumped into the the rug- rugby scene, correct? Uh, no, from Black Sox, I ended up, um, I got tapped um, with um, a bit like the Canadian Olympic program. Oh, okay. Uh, said, hey, you know, we've got trouble problems with our high-performance coaches. Can you do something about it? 
So I was given a literal clean sheet of paper and um, I started working with um, Olympic programs um, from 2000 and about 2003, just before that World Series, I started doing it. Oh, okay. Uh, and um, so my job there was to provide, um, you know, again, help the coaches figure out who they are, what they want to do, and, um, and again, remove clutter because the biggest constraint to performance in all my experience for teams is the coach. So we need to get our coaches in the right space when they go to Olympic Games so that they don't become a problem. Because what was happening um, is that our coaches would get pretty excited at pinnacle events and start doing things they've never done before. And then they lose the players and then uh, the pressure would get too much and teams and athletes would cave in, not perform, and off we'd go. So that was the first part I had to do. Um, and that was about, so what did I do? I just grabbed a whole bunch of really good coaches in New Zealand and asked them questions. So what does a really good coach look like? And then we created a model for um, what we were trying to build. And then we went about creating um, development opportunities for coaches to experience different things that would help them um, develop the skill set um, to um, create a, deliver a greater service to their athletes. So that meant I went to the um, Athens Olympics and the Beijing Olympics, um, more in a um, coach mentoring type role. And um, and I was also uh, doing consulting with um, other sports. That was part of my role. And rugby was one of those sports that I'd spend one or two days in to try and help them figure out what they were trying to do. And um, and then I ended up working full time with rugby in from about two thousand and nine. Okay. Well, how how? And, sorry, I was going to say, working in rugby um, with no pedigree in rugby would be like um, someone from fast pitch who's never picked up a ice, uh, hockey stick um, running um, 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 Canadian hockey's high performance program. <laughs> okay. Wow. <laughs> That's crazy. When you when you put it in those terms, I understand it. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, what what rugby is to New Zealand is pretty much what ice hockey is to Canada. Well, well that's what I was gonna. I was gonna. I was gonna ask if you could, if you could relate the rugby scene in New Zealand to another sport here in North America. So, so essentially, hockey in Canada. Yeah, and it'd be like so. And I got um, my the uh, the All Blacks. Um, they're our national rugby team, uh, and. They're pretty good, and uh, they have been for many, many years, but they could never win a Rugby World Cup. So uh, there's all sorts of things that would go wrong each time they go into a Rugby World Cup. And then in 2007, they didn't make it out of the quarterfinals. So it would be a bit like the Canadian um, uh, hockey team going to the Olympics and not making the um, – certainly not making the middle round, not making the playoffs. Wow. Uh, I don't know what, what would happen in Canada, but in New Zealand there was like public outcries. We wanted to lynch everyone. We needed an independent inquiry because rugby's obviously screwed. They don't know what's going on. So they did this public um, review or independent review, and I happened to be one of the two individuals tasked with doing the review. So that wasn't a very enjoyable time in my life because the country was hurting. The people I was talking to were emotionally broken. Um, everyone, the, the media wanted to lynch everyone. So the first thing I did is um, I slow played it. And the reason I slow played it is because I wanted to let the emotion bleed out before we got down to work. Um, and, um, and then we could actually understand what really happened. So then falling out of there, there was a bunch of recommendations for New Zealand rugby and the All Blacks. And that's when they started saying to me, well, you're the smart ass who have come up with all these recommendations. You can help us sort them out. Um, 
And um, I said no to them initially, um, and then they came back around a couple of years later, and I ended up saying yes and led New Zealand Rugby's High Performance Program, which was um, how we identified talent, um, how we developed that talent, um, and um, right through to the All Blacks in terms of and how do we re- refocus and shift the All Blacks um, to um, giving them the best chance of winning a Rugby World Cup. So my role with the All Blacks was – um, to facilitate all of their planning around uh, what are we trying to do um, to coach the coaches uh, and to provide um, an external perspective. So I would be doing my other parts of my other role and then I'd pop back into the All Blacks just to see if what's going on is aligned to what we've agreed that was going to happen. And right. if it didn't, then have someone on the shoulder and we'd have a conversation about it. Wow. Okay. So did uh end up, you know, win the World Cup? Won the World Cup in 2011 and 2015. Nice, nice. So the two, so the World Cups come around every four years, a bit like back in the day, the softball would yep. come around every four years. So, and um, yeah, so the, and all we did, if I, if I think about it, in terms of um, we figured out what we needed to be successful at. Uh, and um, in 2015, there were only four things we needed to be really good at. And only one of them had anything to do with the game. So our whole focus was on these four areas, uh, and um, and my role was to ensure that anything that we did had to lead through those four areas. Otherwise, we were just creating clutter. And coaches are great at um, creating new ideas. Say, so there's a new idea, new a new thing to do, but it just creates noise, creates clutter, and just slows us down. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, how did the job with the Padres come about? Um, again, it's like. Just luck. Uh, so I'm, I'm working with the All Blacks and um, and then AJ Preller and another guy, Riley Westman, comes in. They're in Australia looking at young Padres players playing in the Australian League. Came across to New Zealand, wanted to speak to someone from the All Blacks. Um, happened to be me. Uh, I was um, going to talk to them for about an hour because, you know, they have got an interest in baseball, not that they knew anything about it because um, none of them have any idea of what I've done um, right. in football. <laughs> so so they go, okay, then we just talk, and we ended up talking for about six hours. So, uh, And the conversations were around all the things that they're trying to do, all the things that we've, we tried to do at rugby, things that worked, things that didn't work, and I could explain why. And then there was, um, you know, there was a book out there, something called Legacy, that's been written about the All Blacks, and a whole heap of people have read that. So I could provide a lot of context to that. In terms of what 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 really happened and what worked, what didn't work, and pretty much all the issues that the Padres were trying to address, I was was explaining. So they almost had a, um, uh, a things that they were just ticking off. And then from there, they asked if I could come to spring training. Um, this was in January, uh, and it was like spring training. Oh, yeah, I thought they were talking about the following year. They were talking in about three or four weeks, and then I thought, oh. I managed to get a week and went up there, and I had no idea what I was doing up there. So I thought, what's the worst thing that can happen? I'm a, you know, I'm a, a softballer mm. I'm working on. Um, I can spend a week in the sun eating hot dogs, watching baseball. There are worse things that could happen in life. Absolutely. Uh, so, and then I ended up working with a bunch of their coaches. Um, and then they brought me back at the end of the year to try and figure out what are they really trying to do, and that's where they put the hard sell on me to say, well, why don't you come up and work for us? And um, and it was like uh, I've had opportunities to work in North America before, um, actually an NBA basketball team about four years earlier, 
um, completely random phone call. Wow. Uh, and, um, but I was really happy with what I was doing at rugby. Um, and I said no. And then when the Padres, it was like I wasn't entirely happy. So I let them talk to me a bit more and then it got quite compelling. Uh, and, um, and really it was about working with good people, trying to do something that's never been done before, which is win in San Diego. Yeah. Um, so when we um, when we put the the final sort of um, package together because they, it was the classic what would it take for you to come and work for us, I got my wife to send the email. <laughs> so that was if they come back and say yes 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 we're not backing out because but if you don't send the email I'm not going to send out we're not going right and wow. that's pretty much how it's worked out. Wow, that's crazy. So what exactly goes into a, a typical workday for you? Um, my title is director of player health and performance. Mm -hmm. So when I first came in, the challenge was we had a dysfunctional medical team, um, disconnect between strength and conditioning, um, athletic trainers, doctors, surgeons. Um, so the first task was to build that team, um, bring them together, understand how we, we, um, we need each other to be successful. So that's, that's still my day-to-day -day role is, is looking after anything medical, um, anything performance related with the player. Um, I also do a lot of work with, um, um, with the coaches um, and have done a lot of work with the managers over the years, um, again, trying to, to um, just help them declutter. I use that word a lot, but that's the, the key to life is that if you, if you live in a complex world, it's pretty tough. If, it's, uh, if things are uh, lined up, it's pretty easy. <laughs> so, And the other part is that um, I troubleshoot. So whenever there's a particular issue, I end up, um, it's, it ends up with me. So um, my typical day here at spring training starts at about you know, 6.30 in the morning uh, and uh, typically we get out of here about 9 o'clock at night and that's every day. So no days off. That was the biggest thing to adjust to um, baseball was that there's no days off right? and it's how, how relentless the game is and some of the things we're trying to change is, you know, these um, cliches to get thrown around, you know, baseball's a, um, a game of failure and it gets thrown around a fast pitch too. And you hear guys talk about, you know, you succeed four times out of 10, you're a Hall of Famer. Hall of Famer. Mm. It's like, God, what a load of crap. It's <laughs> like baseball is a game of opportunity. There aren't many sports where you get a chance to put things right 15 minutes after you failed. Yeah. Normally you have to wait a week or something. And then they talk about baseball's a grind. It's like, no, baseball's a privilege. There's, there's another, no other sport like it where you have to play, perform every night. Um, ice hockey, um, you might play you know two, three games a week. Baseball is probably you know um, well, they only get about one day off every second week. Mm -hmm. um, so, so trying to shift the the mindset of some of those um, deeply ingrained um, sayings that um, people believe, and then the other part is that we need to be we need to um, feel good to be good, which is really massive in baseball. So everything you do about baseball is preparations about feeling good, which is, I don't know if you've ever seen um, batting practice in, in baseball where guys are lobbing the ball over and they're just crushing it out of the park. It's like that's got nothing to do with what happens at um, at 7 o'clock when the lights go on. So, you know, we've tried to shift um, where how can we make our guys, um, how can we humble them? Is it better to humble them at 12 o'clock in the afternoon or at 7 o'clock when the lights are on and 40,000 people are in the stand? Mm. So we're trying to sort of shift that because the sports that I've ever been involved with, um, you need to be good to feel good. Uh, you don't. It's not about feeling good to be good. Yeah. So confidence comes from being good, um, not feeling good. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So, so that, 
So that's a bit of what we're trying to do here as well. And then during the regular season, the last few years, it's all been with the major league team. Um, but I also um, uh, spend a lot of the staff that, that um, are under um, my department um, working the, our affiliates. So I need to get out there and try and spend some time with them. So I think that's what it's going to look like this year is, is I'll spend, um, be at Petco Park for every home game go on the road with the team probably a third of the time and then the other two thirds I'll be out in our affiliates just um, having a look at what's going on there and, and helping our people out there. Right on. That's a, hey, that's a, <laughs> I would love to have that job. That's a, <laughs> well, none of my friends think I work. It's like, it's like uh, Olympic Games, Commonwealth Games, Rugby World Cups, <laughs> baseball. It's like what part of that is work? Yeah. It's yeah. like, oh, yeah, it is. I mean, it's, um, and, and I do the first front of the year by myself. My wife doesn't join me because it's just really demanding and mm. spring training is not much fun, um, although guys like Mark Sorensen come over for a week or so and they seem to have a lot of fun. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so – and I wouldn't bring my wife to Arizona to sit in a, an apartment where she doesn't know anyone and, and look at the walls. Right. So she, st- she stays in New Zealand with the kids and then she'll come up um, for opening day. Oh, okay. So, so your kids move to uh, San Diego as well? Mm-hmm. No, they're all adults, so they're all um, two of them just finished up university. So they, my kids are twenty seven, twenty four, twenty two. Oh, okay. So um, yeah, so they're all based in New Zealand. So you know, pre COVID, they'd come up um, probably three times a year, uh, and um, my wife would get back a couple of times a year, and then I'd get back at Christmas time. So we stay connected, um, but the last few years has been challenging um, for everyone. Um, so oh, yeah. uh, so I tend to when I leave New Zealand, I don't get back until Christmas time. Wow. Wow, that's that's quite a, quite a job, but yeah. Um, but I'm working working in sport, and it's like, an, and I'm one of the privileged few that combines passion with employment. So, which is why we we don't want this to feel like work. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, one hundred percent. I mean, if, if I could do podcasting for a job, I would love to do that. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> Just yeah. something. I mean, if it wasn't for the pandemic, I wouldn't be doing this. <laughs> really but uh you know you just kind of it falls into your lap and here you go so um little thing i'd like to end the podcast with here don is uh player association i'm gonna uh throw a few names to you and you can say as much or as little about them as you want sure all right uh first one on the docket here uh chub tangaroa uh chub is uh you know, we're pretty much the same age, so I've been playing against Chubb for years. The first time I saw Chubb um, was we're playing, it might have been an under-15 tournament, and we're playing, a, he's from a, a small town a little bit further north from me, and the province is called Horofenua. And uh, we thought, we've never even heard of Chubb Tangaroa. And here's this, and we normally smash Horofenua. Um, we got Michael White, remember? Mm. And then we got the guy walking across in the slippers, and we're thinking, who the hell is this guy? <laughs> and then he gets on the mound and then woof, woof, woof. Oh, this guy's pretty good. So, and he actually beat us. So he beat Michael White um, back in those days. Um, but with um, Chubb is, um, the key to Chubb is getting him home at night. And I remember um, uh, we, we played, might have been a Canadian Cup, and we played um, a North American um, native side and, and Zach was playing for them and Chubb was, um, Zach decided, hey, let's all go back to, you know, there was, um, um, yeah, they were, where Zach's from was about four hours or so away and Chubb was all keen and I'm thinking, Chubb, it's about two in the morning. You want to go back there four hours, that's six. You want to hang out there with Zach and all his guys and then you want to get back for the next night for us to play. 
So it was like that was where my negotiating skills came into it, and eventually Chubbs were the light to say, well, maybe it wasn't the smartest thing. <laughs> That's awesome. Oh, my God. He was wearing slippers? <laughs> oh, slippers. So slip, like, like stuff that you'd wear to bed. Yeah. You know, yeah. Yeah, those things. Yeah, and that's what he just. And again, and and there's nothing fast about Chubb um, except when he throws the ball. Right. So yeah, let's just say that it took a while to, for him to actually rock up there, oh, and there he was. He was out there throwing. I was like, wow, this guy is really good. That's awesome. Uh, next uh, friend of the show, Jared Martin. Uh, Jared is um, <laughs> again. He's. Such a talent. It was uh, – I don't know if you know much about um, Jared. Do you know anything about Jared's dad? Not, no, not about his dad, no. Okay. His, so his dad is um, – uh, well, he's from a great sporting family in, in Taranaki. So his cousin Bevan played for the Black Sox. Um, his, his father and his uncle um, were big rugby men in Taranaki. His dad was like one of the, the best golfer in Taranaki for years. Um, so Jared is uh, – you throw anything with a senior bat and a ball at him, and he's going to be really good. He's he's the best golfer that um, um, I've ever played with in terms of from a softball sense. Uh, and uh, again, on the on the softball field, in terms of when he first started, he was a he pitched and he never hit. And then we come to the final of our national club championships. He was playing for Miramar, so Michael, he was Michael White's team. Uh, and um, so Michael was doing a lot of the pitching. Um, Jared was doing a lot of the pitching, but he never hit. And then we get to the finals. So, you know, and then all of a sudden, Jared's a DH, and we thought, well, we've never seen this guy hit. And then he proceeded to just first time up against Marty Grant, hits him out. <laughs> so it's like, <laughs> wow. So, yeah, he was, uh, he's, and that that's again tells you about how humble he is. Never told anyone how good he was, mm. but when he got the opportunity, um, his uh, he didn't have to say anything because his bat said everything for him. Yeah, oh, he was. Uh, we had him on here, and man, he was he was a treat to chat with for sure. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's just it's just so cool to, to have a chance to work with some of those guys. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and this next guy, another guy we had in the podcast, and you've worked with them is uh, Marty Grant. Yeah, Marty is. Um, well, I got yeah, plenty of stories with Marty. He was. Um, I was his first roommate when he made the the Black Sox team. Believe it or not. So again, it was for whatever reason I didn't get Joe. I got Marty. So <laughs> in pitches. Uh, but um, but Marty was. You know, I watched Marty. Um, I played with him. Um, um, played against him. Um, coached him. Coached against him. And then the making of Marty for me was the 2000 World Series. And that is that Marty had always been part of a pitching staff that had, um, you know, um, well, they're all good pitchers, but big personalities, um, Chubb, Michael White, um, Peter Meredith. And so Marty was always, um, so he was never really given responsibility when he played for New Zealand. And as a result, he got a bit of a reputation, I think, in terms of where he was probably a little bit soft mentally or he could be distracted mentally, not soft, but easily distracted. Uh, so we, um, Marty, and we worked pretty hard going into that World Series in South Africa, in terms of changing that perception, and um, and that's where. So that he was our main guy. He had the ball, uh, and the way he grew and the um, the responsibility that he took on uh, was just so great to see. And um, then to see him, of course, um, pitch the final and and uh, you know 
get the last out and, and sit back and, and watch in terms of um, Marty celebrating and along with all the other players, knowing all the work that he'd put into it. Um, so that was probably one of the most rewarding things I've ever had in sport is um, seeing the um, how um, the opposition would view Marty as someone that they could get to, to someone who was just unflappable under pressure um, when it really mattered for us. Awesome. Uh, last, you touched on him a little bit earlier, uh, Mark Sorensen. Yeah. Well, Mark, uh, yeah, what do I want to say about Mark. I mean, you, you guys know Mark. I mean, Mark's oh, yeah. across here and, and uh, you know, incredible, um, well, incredible softballer. Um, he's taken on coaching and um, doing a hell of a job there. Um, and, uh, you know, he's... He's um, you know, great dad, um, great husband um, um, to his uh, to Janine. So a very very good friend. So again, it's like saying right now, Mark and I, in terms of our relationship, is you know we spend time together. Um, he talks to me about some of the things he's trying to do. I share with him some of the things that we've tried to do. So we leverage off each other. So he's he's incredibly open, um, um, very passionate about the Black Sox, um, wants passionate about the sport of softball in New Zealand, um, but um, will do anything um, to advance the Black Sox and um, New Zealand softball. Uh, but more than anything, he's just a good mate. Mm-hmm. Um, that um, if, if I'm ever struggling, um, I know that he'd be uh, by my side unconditionally. Um, if I've done something that's pretty stupid, he'll slap me around when I'm safe. <laughs> uh, um, when I'm safe, he won't do anything, but make sure that I'm safe. But when, it, when I am safe, he'll, he'll let me know that I've been a complete dork. Uh, so he's just a, um, a, a great man to, to have on your side. And again, it's like if I come back in terms of all the, all the guys that I've had, um, is that you know, we're really fortunate that um, my career coincided with Mark Sorensen. Mm. And um, and when I was with the All Blacks, there happened to be another guy um, who was like the mainstay of the All Blacks, a guy by the name of Richie McCaw. Uh, oh, and, yes. and just um, what a privilege to spend time with him. And it's like Mark and Richie are pretty much cut of the same cloth. And Richie McCaw is like an absolute icon in New Zealand sport, as is Mark. But um, Mark can still go to a you know a restaurant and no one will pester him. Richie McCall can't do anything like that. <laughs> that's that's crazy. That's crazy. Well, hey, that's perfect way to end this podcast here, Don. I got to uh, I got to thank you for coming on. This has been a treat to chat with you. Uh, you know, big part of the the softball game. You know, not only in New Zealand but across the world as well and uh i'm looking forward to uh watching the san diego padres this year i have a new favorite national league team <laughs> good, man. good man and again it's like it's an absolute delight um to be on your show randy and and thank you for everything that you're um you're doing for sport it's like i mean i'm indebted to the sport i wouldn't be here and um with the padres if it wasn't for for softball uh, when i went back to new zealand at um, just before christmas um I ended up um helping the my local community team so uh my son was playing in it so i took them for practices coached them for a few weeks and uh, a lot of fun great young kids um again trying to be really really good um and it was just a delight to get back and, and work with some young kids again awesome that's awesome well done best of luck this season hopefully uh everything gets under underway for you guys and uh you know the padres can bring that uh world series title home for the first time 
Yeah, thanks. That's not going to be easy, but um, we are going to give it a shot. Well, yeah, hopefully, uh, I'm saying hopefully as long as the Blue Jays. <laughs> I'm a Blue Jays fan, so. <laughs> yeah, well, we might be, well, we might be playing the last game of the year together. Hey, that that would be epic. I would I would absolutely love that. And if we and if we you know if it happens to be in um, in Toronto, you know, let me know and I'll hook you up. Oh, <laughs> hey, I'm holding you to that. <laughs> okay. All right, All right Don. Thanks. Thank you. Yeah, I know I never took it serious. Then what we had got fucked up. We grew apart, but in my heart I still love ya. Back at the start, I thought it lasted so long. Went by so fast, now it feels like the passion is gone. Everything I loved about you just got pissed away. And it really gets to be because I miss some days. You was modest, honest, pretty much you gone. It's the farthest thing from bitchy or heartless. And never saw less of this jobless poor head. Even though I couldn't get your cards and chocolates, you put up with my nonsense day after day. You were one of the types you don't let get away. Shit, we used to get looped together. I remember one time you were so sick we almost puked together. Your mood was better then, but who woulda knew what we had? We were too loose forever. Damn, I still love you. You were late, you were like my sunshine. We were too young for love, but I knew you'd be mine. Had to let you go and get on with my life. Now I got you back, ain't gonna leave it this time. And I know I can always rely. When I know you'll be keeping me high. So I won't let you go, not again. Cause I know I've learned my lesson. I know I can't take it serious. You gotta know what I'm feeling. That's I know I said I wouldn't do it, but I did it And now it got me wishing that my position was switching Never no hugs, no tongue, never kissing But keep fucking with us since the first day I hit it The minute that you talked, I would listen You made the way that I walk a little different I like your vibe, like the way that you feel Your head style from the start, now you're paying my bills I gotta love it Yeah, I'm a little obsessed And I'll confess, without you, I feel a little depressed The wife's headed, sick of me giving you my attention Really, I see a point, but it was never my intention I'm always talking and bragging you up like yo check this is she amazing or what and the fatter that you get the better i can't complain the mistress in my life music before the fame i love it are you downsizing maybe need more room because of additions to the family or possibly seeking that dream home you've always wanted well, Tim Eisner at Royal LePage Atlantic is the guy for you. With a proven track record and multiple awards, Tim goes above and beyond to find out your needs and exactly what you're looking for. So if you're seeking a new home or trying to sell your current one, contact Tim at 902-499-5717 or check him out on Facebook at Tim Eisner. Again, that's 902-499-5717. Trust me, when all is said and done, we'll be saying Tim Eisner strikes again. <laughs>